Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Progressive You. This is Jack. I'm here with my co-host, Rachel. It's the day before the 4th of July, so we're having a lot of fun with that. We know we're a little bit late on this episode, but there's been so much news to take in that we've been processing it processing it and figuring out what we're going to say about it. We're going to cover a few stories and a lot of things we can't get to, but we again wanted to thank you so much for joining us, um, and we hope you have a happy 4th. Anyway, I want to jump into our very first story. A lot of our stories today, actually probably all of them, you're going to have vaguely heard about or you're going to um, understand slightly, but I want to explain more of the implications and um, the backstory and things like that. So obviously the biggest story in the news is that Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy has retired. Kennedy was a Republican appointed by a Republican, but also someone who was somewhat moderate on social issues and someone who was considered the swing vote. He did vote with the conservatives most of the time, especially in this term. He voted with them almost across the board, but he was more of a swing vote than um, Thomas, um, the, for, the the late Antonin Scalia, a lot of the other Supreme Court justices, and he's now gone. Trump has talked about replacing him with this list of justices that he put out when he was running, or judges that he put out when he was running in the 2016 campaign. Many of them coming from the very, very conservative Federalist Society. Democrats are making this a rallying cry, talking about the precedent of Roe versus Wade and the concern that the next court could overturn that decision. Kennedy held with that decision in Casey versus Planned Parenthood in a 5-4 decision and said Roe was settled law. Um, Democrats have 49 seats in the Senate, which is the body that confirms it. Republicans took away the filibuster, so it now takes 51 votes to confirm a nominee, not 60. Um, And the Republicans, as I said, the Republicans control 51 seats, but they do have two senators in Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, who are at least nominally pro-choice. Susan Collins has come out and said that she will not vote for a nominee who plans on overturning Roe. Um, I don't know whether to believe her, but I'm going to pass the the, the uh, baton to Rachel here because I'm losing my breath and I need to cough. Yeah, so um, obviously one of the big things that everybody has been talking about are the implications on um, future Supreme Court cases regarding abortion. Um, you know, as Jack mentioned, he was the deciding vote in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey case in the 90s. Um, and, you know, because Roe v. Wade was not, uh, what was it, 6-0, 9-0? I mean, uh, 5-4. Five, no, I mean, what is, like, the most you can, so it's 9, yeah, 9-0. It wasn't a 9-0 decision. So, um, a lot, you know, that is one of the reasons why um, it's just been so under fire. You know, with the Brown versus Board of, Board of Education case, they made sure that they had um such a strong decision so that it wouldn't be messed with. But the problem with Roe v. Wade is that... Um, you know, there are, since then, um, there are st- just so many people who uh, don't support um, the right to choose. And because of this, people um, have consistently tried to bring cases back, um, you know, to provide more um, regulations for it. Um, for instance, recently, um, the Supreme Court voted that crisis pregnancy centers were legal. Um, and so you can already see, even when he was on um, the court... He- there were already serious implications of, um, and I must um, correct myself. The road decision was actually seven two. Although in Casey versus Planned Parenthood, I got to check really fast, but I do. I think it was five four. That was five four. Yeah, um, and so I want to pivot really fast and also talk about the fact that um, Justice Kennedy was the swing vote in the Obergefell versus Hodges cases, which I know for a fact was a five four decision. That was the June. 
2015 decision that made same-sex marriage the law of the land in all 50 states. Um, There is some concern that that could be overturned because most of the justices, minus Scalia, that were that ruled against um, uh, that decision are on the court still, and Neil Gorsuch is very conservative. So there's kind of this paradox in I don't know if that's the right word, but in legal in co- legal conservatism where they talk about the originalist interpretation of the Constitution, and for some of them that means more being more activists than others. They claim that they're against activist judges. So some conservatives are very concerned with precedent and would not overturn Roe versus Wade or Casey versus Planned Parenthood or um, Obergefell versus Hodges just because of the fact that there's been a precedent that that was ruled the way that it was, and they don't want to overturn that. But then there's more conservative. There's a more conservative view that actually conservative justices should be activists and go back and scrape decisions that with which they don't agree in order to fit that more quote-unquote originalist interpretation of the Constitution. So basically, that's a lot of, not a lot of legal jargon, but that's a little bit of legal jargon. Basically what that means is that the justices that claim to be conservative that Trump could appoint, um, or the judges and lawyers, they there's two different routes they can take, and Susan Collins has said that she wants them to take the route of Roe versus Wade is settled law, and they're not going to mess with that. We'll see how that goes. Something that hasn't been reported on enough is that the, what this does with partisan gerrymandering. So in the partisan gerrymandering, or in a few partisan gerrymandering cases that came before the court, the four liberals said <clears throat> in one of them, they basically sent it back to a lower court and said that this is what needs to be argued in order for partisan gerrymandering to be overturned. Justice Kennedy has always said that partisan gerrymandering could be unconstitutional, but he hasn't found a way that they can stop it or the courts can step in and take action. Um, and there was always some hope. Everyone was basically pitching their argument to that one man, to Justice Kennedy, that this is the way that we can stop partisan gerrymandering in a constitutional way. And he's, hasn't bought, he hasn't, he'd never sunk his teeth into it, but he did agree that eventually he would come around to that. And now it seems unlikely that the next justice will do that. So part of, that means that I think that I, they talked about this on pods. Or I think it was, I don't actually remember if it was a Vox podcast or a crooked media podcast, but they're talking about how there's a lot of disenfranchisement, disenfranchisement in voters because especially liberal and moderate voters, because we've seen in 2000 and 2016, the majority of people or the plurality of people voted for a democratic candidate and a democratic candidate didn't win the, um, didn't win the presidency. We've seen over and over in House, United States House of Representatives races, the majority of the country will vote for Democrats, but Republicans will still take control. We'll see in many state legislatures where majority of people, such as in Wisconsin, can vote for Democrats, but Republicans still take control. I mean, we've been talking over and over about how Democrats need to be up, they need to win the popular nationwide vote by seven points in order to win the House of Representatives. Now, you would think when every single house in the, in every single seat in the House of Representatives is up, they would only need to win the popular vote by one vote in order to have the majority. But actually, in fact, to even have a one or two seat majority, Democrats have to win seven points more than Republicans do because of partisan gerrymandering. And that's something that I think a lot of people feel disenfranchised by. I know I certainly do. We have a court that is Republican. We have a Senate that's Republican. We have a House that's Republican. And we have a president that's a Republican when that's not um, as necessarily what the country looks like. Um, And I think it's particularly concerning that 
and someone, a lot of people have written some op-eds about this, but this was just a few thousand votes that decided that this Supreme Court seat was going to go to a Republican as opposed to a Democrat. It was also a few thousand votes that decided that the previous Supreme Court seat that was up was going to go to the very conservative Neil Gorsuch versus the moderate Democrat Merrick Garland, who President Obama put up. So Democrats have been arguing that McConnell, Mitch McConnell should stick to the McConnell rule and not give a Supreme Court nominee a hearing until the election. This vacancy actually happened closer to the most recent election than what happened with Scalia when he died in February, and Mitch McConnell said they should wait until the election. Um, but of course, McConnell is a hypocrite, and he's not going to hold to that rule. I honestly, if I'm being real here, think it's very, very unlikely that Democrats are able to hold off this nominee and that the next Supreme Court justice is an extremely conservative, if not as conservative, or if not more conservative than Neil Gorsuch, at least as, but we'll have to see. I mean, yeah, and this reminds me of another really controversial um, nomination of Betsy DeVos, um, you know, and she had even more um, alignment against her, even on the Republican side, and, you know, even her nomination was confirmed. Um, So, I mean, if we don't have... If someone like that is able, um, who has, you know, hate against her on both parties, even if she's still able to um, retain her nomination, I, I really don't see the Democrats being able to hold off a less controversial um, candidate. For- so another big thing in the news has been something that we talked about last week, which was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We talked a little bit about how she was running against New York Democrat and number four ranking Democrat in the House, Joe Crowley. Um, at the time, the election had not, had not yet happened, but now Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been selected in the Democratic primary in New York in that um, district, which consists of parts of the Queens and Bronx and the Bronx, um, of Queens and the Bronx. And it's very likely she will be the next congresswoman from there. She will be the youngest congresswoman ever elected. Um, but something I wanted to talk about was her and her platform. She talked about abolishing ICE. And that was an idea that had been gaining a lot of traction on the Internet on the left and had not had that much institutional support. There were a few House members calling for that. I think maybe one or two senators. Um, and then... All of a sudden, once Ocasio-Cortez won that election, lots of Democratic senators have now called for the abolishment or the abolition of ICE. Um, Senator Warren, Senator Gillibrand have, I think, I believe Senator Harris has, and those are all changes in positions for those people. Specifically, I remember Senator Harris was asked about that, and she said she did not want to abolish ICE, and she's now changed. Of course, all three of them are Democratic presidential hopefuls in 2020. Kind of something I wanted to talk about was I initially was not someone who favored abolishing ICE. I kind of was wary of the idea, not because I didn't support it, but because maybe I didn't know enough about it. But looking at it recently, that's something that I completely understand the logic of and I'm totally behind. Um, I do think that the ultimate goal of us as Democrats and progressives should be to um, alter the actual immigration laws enough so that people aren't there's so much there's enough legal immigration that le- illegal immigration almost isn't a thing because there should be a lot more legal immigration in the first place um but i do agree that the agency is rogue and that their enforcement of illegal immigration is, has be- become ridiculous they talked about on the latest pod save america episode how um ICE has been found to, they falsify documents of a dreamer to try and make it look like that person was in a gang just to deport them. Under the Obama administration, especially in the first term, Obama over and over would tell them, I only want you going after violent criminals, I only want you going after gang members, 
human traffickers, things like that, and they would ignore him and just go after petty crimes and um, run-of-the-mill illegal immigrants. But our ultimate goal as Democrats should be a path to citizenship, as it has been for the 11 million people who are here illegally. However, I do think that considering ICE has only existed since 2003, it's under the purview of the DHS as opposed to the Department of Justice, meaning that... um, is DHS the right thing? And yeah, Department of Homeland Security basically making it, they're trying to pitch it as a counterterrorism agency because it was created after 9-11. When ICE is deporting um, little girls and families and things, that's not, I don't think that well, just that's... just children in general. Yeah, I don't think that that's them um, doing any sort of counterterrorism. I think that that's kind of them being the terrorists. Yeah, and I think that this is representative of the way that um, future progressive politics are going in this country. You know, after the 2016 election, more progressive ideas, um, you know, things advocated by Bernie Sanders became more mainstream. Um, it became It's becoming less and less about the establishment. Um, I think that Democrats uh, are definitely trying to learn their lesson from the 2016 election um, and realize that, they, you know, they need to stop playing nice guy politics, stop trying to compromise all the time. Um, and actually push for something that they believe in because you know you can't having an issue like separating children at the border that's not an issue of partisan politics that is an issue of human rights and so you can't that's like compromising with nazis You, you can't do that and it bothers me that um you know that there are still establishment democrats who um i mean thankfully most you know after the border crisis that we just saw um all of I don't know if it's all of them, but, uh, you know, um, people on both sides of the political spectrum have come out against it. Um, But I think that it's definitely still an issue of, you know, not having enough Democrats necessarily supporting things like abolishing ICE. Um, ICE is just, you know, like Jack has described, they've been criticized for their inhumane ways of dealing with immigration, like, you know, um, prosecuting petty crimes rather than going after um, the larger criminals um, like President Obama wished. Um, And, you know, these ICE agents, one thing that has really bothered me is that there have been a number of them who have been like, oh, we're just following orders. And obviously we know that's what the Nazis said during the Nuremberg trials. Um, And I don't think that it's appropriate to have an agency devoted to um, dealing with something like this, like Jack said, I, I mean, obviously I'm for abolishing ICE, but I do think that there also has to be, um, legislation put in place to make legal immigration easier. Um, and then the problem with that is that there are just so many Republicans right now who are, have just gotten so on board with making Trump's wall, you know, a mainstream idea that instead of, you know, trying to figure out a way to solve the solution, excuse me, to create a solution for a problem that we already have. They're just trying to create an even larger one. And I think something that we have to discuss as Democrats is the electoral side of this. So a lot of the establishment Democrats who quietly might have more pro-immigration positions have come out with this idea. And they're somewhat right that in the past, when Democrats have talked about immigration, it's not been a good issue for us. Immigration, guns, gay rights and abortion are all issues that have traditionally been social issues which democrats try not to broach on as much because they know 
that especially in red states, it doesn't play well for them. But we're seeing with this Kennedy not, Kennedy um, vacancy, Democrats are making Roe versus Wade the central issue, abortion rights. We've seen after the uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School massacre that guns became a huge issue for Democrats and that people are on their side. 60% or so of people are pro-life and the same amount, around 60 to six to 70%, depending how close you are to the massacre, if we're being real, support um, common sense gun legislation like um, banning semi-automatic weapons. So I think that immigration can become one of those issues which we went on. And I think something we have to not be afraid of is even if a minority of people support abolishing ICE is saying that. Because we've seen from the right over and over, they'll advocate ideas which are extraordinarily unpopular and they can still win elections. I think that they're going to lose in November, but we've seen that they advocated for Obamacare repeal bills, which were polling at like 12% at the time when they were doing them. We've seen them advocate for tax bills, the tax bill which passed, which is now polling at like 35%. We've seen them say that they are anti-choice when the majority, when 60% of people are pro-choice. We've seen the party still be a party which holds to the idea of quote-unquote traditional marriage, even after same-sex marriage was legalized now over three years ago, and the vast majority of the American public is on that side. We've seen a party which has said they do not support universal background checks on gun sales when over 90% of the American public supports that. We've seen a party which says that they don't want to overturn Citizens United when a vast majority of the American people want to do that. Not just the fringes of the Republican Party, but the mainstream of the Republican Party is extraordinary, extraordinarily out of lock with the American people, and they're not afraid to do that. Democrats do not need to become out of lock with the American people. What they do need to do is put up ideas that are not extraordinarily popular at the time but are progressive ideas and advocate for them because that's how republicans get people to vote for them they get people to vote for them not because republicans do anything good for your average joe but because they're good at messaging and they make it seem that way when they talk about the tax bill they don't talk about how all the benefits went to the one percent and they can't wait to cut their donors taxes they say they cut your taxes yes it's a lie and we as democrats don't need to lie to people to make our ideas win we just need to advocate for them so, um, you know, now that we've touched on domestic politics a little bit, we're going to get into my favorite, um, you know, my specialty, international relations and international politics. <sighs> so an important election that happened this week was that of the presidential race in Mexico. So, um, you know, just to give you a little backstory from, I think it was like 1929 um, to 2000, the more conservative parties, um, which were the National Action Party and the um, Institutional Revolutionary Party, those are the two center-right, right parties, um, they were in power. Finally, in 2000, um, the leftist group was able to take um, I can't remember if you said back. Mexico or not, but we should do the backstory that this is Mexico. What? I just can't remember if you said Mexico or not, but backstory, this is Mexico. I already said that, Jack, but mm. thank you for educating our listeners. Sorry, I'm just really bored. <laughs> You're so funny. So quirky. Anyways, Jack, if you'd like to get off your phone and pay attention to um, politics that matter instead of, you know, just trying to be, you're basically like a Nashville politician, you know, Stop. only caring about yourself. Stop. People are going to feel added. Anyways, um, so as I was getting back, once the leftist party was able to take back control, unfortunately, Mexico, you know, was still under... Um, had lots of incidences of violence and poverty and corruption. Um, and, you know, their party was unseated in 2012. Those are my favorite things. 
when President um, Enrique uh, Peña Nieto um, took back the reign, um, you know, and he, for a while, he was really, really popular with the me- Mexican citizens, you know, he was a fresh face, uh, you know, after all the turmoil that they had been experiencing. Um, and he was able, you know, he had high hopes, but unfortunately he decided to go into a, um, very expensive, um, you know, war against the nation's drug cartels. And obviously, um, Mexico's drug cartels, unfortunately control a lot of politics, you know, with dirty money, they're kind of like the Koch brothers. Um, (laughs) they're like the equivalent, you know, oil, it's like the oil cartel, you know, I accident, I actually recently read an article about, um, you know, all of the other elections that were going on in Mexico for um, mayors and, and such, you know, most of them end up being shot by the cartels. And, and this woman, like, took over her husband's race after she was shot. It was actually very inspirational. But anyways, um, so after his war on, you know, the drug cartels, since then he's become less and less popular. Um, and um, the person, the, the, AMLO, um, which is Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, he is the uh, leftist candidate that won the presidency of Mexico. So he was a presidential nominee twice and lost both times um, by a lot. And so this race was, um, I don't know if I would necessarily call it surprising, but it was a very big victory, you know, um, really satisfying for the leftist party finally being able to take back control. And, you know, his edu- uh, his platform is running on education and getting rid of um, income, or not getting rid of income inequality, decreasing it as best he can, um, and uh, establishing less corruption that occurs because of the nation's drug cartels. Um, and, you know, he's had a, that's a difficult challenge to take on. And one of his, you know, he's, he, how he phrases it is that, you know, his ethics and um, cleanliness are going to just flow down the ranks um, of his government. And that will help change the nation's culture. I um, honestly, I think that's a little idealistic. But, um, you know, he definitely has a hard task. He's getting the nation after, um, you know, of just so many this year, no, no, excuse me, 2017 was the deadliest year on record for Mexico since they started like recording numbers two decades ago for violence, um, for murders. And, you know, that is definitely, um, a huge issue. For example, that is one of the reasons why so many, um, immigrants have tried to come to the United States is because of gang violence and, um, murders and such that are happening there. And so obviously Mexico, um, is at a, you know, it's at a crossroads. It's at a very difficult position, but I do, I have hope having a, a candidate who, um, advocates for leftist policies and, you know, hopefully have something more similar to, um, what the United States, um, excuse me, what the progressive parties of the United States would do. And AMLO, I think, has rightfully been criticized. He's um, very broad in general on his what mm-hmm. he wants to do. He His policies are not necessarily super spelled out, and he's very known, kind of like Trump is, for saying one thing one day and then another thing the other day. But I do think it's good that a left-wing party in Mexico has won. You touched on earlier how it wasn't necessarily surprising, and I would say in the short run it wasn't surprising. I think people generally knew that AMLO was going to win. He had a blowout election, but I think in the long term this is shocking to the Mexican political psyche because, as you said, they've had conservative presidents in power for so long, Mm -hmm. and they're trying something new. And I think that hopefully this will be good not only for the economy of Mexico, 
But um, as you've been talking about for the corruption, that is a huge deal in Mexican politics. Um, obviously, if you in certain provinces, if you run against the drug cartel or if you're not in bed with them, they will literally kill you. Um, and, and that's not like hyperbole where they're killing your political career or something. They will literally murder you. Um, and it's it's a very scary, it, I mean, it's extremely scary what's going on down there and the amount of power that the cartels have over the government, the police. There are certain towns that they can just completely run um, off of fear. And hopefully um, someone, AMLO or anyone else, would be able to reform that. Um, it is exciting. AMLO, obviously, being a leftist, has been an extraordinary critic of the president of the United States. He said he's going to push back on Trump. Um, Trump tweeted a little congratulations to him um, and not really super much. Obviously, they are not obviously, but something that's a little backstory. The current president of Mexico, who's a, a conservative um, or center right, has not actually met with pre the president of the United States yet because there's been so much um, tension tension over the, the potential building of the wall. Um, and those meetings, I think there have been two that have been scheduled and they've been kind of high profile canceled. Yes. Um, the only thing, not the only thing, one worry that I do have is that AMLO's, you know, his message um, and his rhetoric is very similar to Hugo Chavez um, and what he used in Venezuela. Hugo Chavez um, was obviously a, um, you know, he was a leftist candidate as well, um, more towards the communist spectrum. Um, he privatized Venezuela's oil industry in order to pay for all of his social programs, which is what AMLO um, has talked about doing, although AMLO says he will respect um, the contracts and such that already exist um, that, you know, are not going to be able to happen if he privatizes the oil um, industry. But anyways, what happened with Hugo Chavez is although he was super popular um, with the people from Venezuela, Venezuela, because, you know, he was advocating for so many social programs, um, the problem is that all of these people liked him, but then all of the wealthy people ended up leaving Venezuela. Um, and a lot of corruption existed um, throughout all parts of the government. Um, and now Venezuela is at a horrible state with all of the food shortages and the violence that is occurring um, after Hugo Chavez's death and his successor's um, reign. Um, hopefully, though, um, AMLO um, will be a lot less corrupt than Hugo Chavez. Hopefully, he... Um, we'll learn from other um, mistakes that have happened in other Latin American countries um, when things, when regimes have changed so drastically. Um, but, you know, we'll just have to hope and see. So with that, I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. I just found out because I got so bored during this story that I have 150,000 points on Snapchat now. And I'm really proud of myself because I've been waiting a long time and it's taken forever. Um, it's been like a week since I've been checking. So well, thank congratulations. You Mine is 600,500, wait, 654,000. So, well, well, good thing I have a life anyway. So I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. I know this episode's a little longer, um, but we had fun recording it, at least for the first two stories. We can't wait to see you guys next week. You're welcome for educating you um, guys. I hope you share this with all of your friends on social media, elsewhere, send them the link, uh, subscribe, like it, rate it whatever YouTubers and podcasters are supposed to say. Like and subscribe. Thanks so much. Bye.